himself. And so from Luke chapter 12, I found that there were some things that changed my mind about the way I viewed living. I've come to believe after all of these years that my attitude toward life, as well as my attitude toward God, has a great deal to do with my effectiveness in the work of God. And so if I cannot relate to other people. I cannot follow submissively the leadership of my husband, who is also my pastor, who is also my district superintendent, and a lot of other good things to me. But attitudes must be brought in compliance with the word of God. And once that is done, we begin from God's point of view. Working within the framework of the Holy Scriptures and God's call on our life becomes relatively easy because God made it in the beginning worship Him. And so I believe that when our philosophies and our attitudes are brought by the Holy Ghost into alignment with the will and the Word of God, we can do many things with a lot than and flying away uphill, upstream, and against the grain, as many people do from day to day. Like in that instance, when you do it in the will of God and parallel to His Word and His attitudes in His Word, it takes the pressure out of a lot of things, it reduces stress almost to zilch. And even though we live life in the fast lane, and we hop from one plane to another, from one country to another, and get very little sleep from time to time, there's a great deal of peace way down deep inside that just keeps you charged and keeps you going. Hallelujah. I have not always stood at the vantage point that I stand today. I, as all of you, are not as young as I used to be. And... Gray hairs do streak the sides and make it a little more difficult to tease and cover it. And you understand what happens there. When I knew Mary, I was 15 years of age the first time I met her in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was the year 1955. That's a long time ago. As my son says, back when the dinosaurs were on the earth. <laughs> so I am not young anymore, although I am not old. I calculated by uh, virtue of what I view to be a very good possibility. I have, if God lets me live, and if the Lord doesn't come, two major factors. I have as much left to live as I have already lived. So I'm only halfway to where I'm going. And there's an awful lot that can happen in the next 47 years. If we do it right. Life is wonderful. It isn't without problems. Everybody has problems. But problems are not obstacles. They're simply challenges. 
Life is wonderful when you live it in the will of God and constantly seeking and searching what he would have you do next. Not next week, the next moment. Not next year, the next day. And the immediate future is always a challenge. When you get a little older, there are certain things that you see that you did not see when you were younger. I wish I could have had the opportunity to see the things and feel certain things that many years ago I did not see. But I did the next best thing, and for those of you that are young, I highly recommend it. I found that my parents could be trusted, my master friends, my fathers in the Lord. There are so many of them that I revere from years back. People that I looked to, people that I listened to, people that I watched. I watched how they did things. I watched how they walked. I watched how they dressed. I made special note if they were successful in the things they set out to do. I made mental notes of those things, and I did my best to set that as my own goal, not to be like them, but to be as them. And so if you are young, I strongly recommend that you find people more than one because you always run the risk that in every basket there will be a bad apple or two. So find yourself more than one or two and look up to them and look at them and watch them and make notes and keep going and keep walking and keep reaching and keep growing. And by and by, you'll be 47 and you'll be looking back. From the 12th chapter of Luke, Jesus warned us that we should not be afraid of them that kill the body and then have no more that they can do. He said that I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. And then Jesus made some comments relative to a value system. He said, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings and not one of them is forgotten before God? And he made the remark that even the hairs of your head are numbered. This tells me that God is paying attention to me. And every time I clean out my brush, he changes his record. <laughs> he never is a thing about me when I'm not even thinking about it. God is looking at me and he's aware of me even more so than the little sparrow that falls from the heaven. He values me. And then Jesus said, fear not therefore. In other words, dismiss the fear from your heart that nobody notices or that no one is looking he said, just get it out of there and forget it now. He said, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then he began to lay down some ground rules for living in this life. He expressed some profound concepts that gave me just a little bit of an idea of his philosophy. And he said unto them, Luke recorded, 
Take heed and beware of covetousness. Strange he mentioned that. For a man's life consisteth not. In other words, what is life made up of? It consisteth not in the abundance, quantity, of the things which he possesseth. It isn't how many antiques you have. It isn't in how elaborate the draperies are. A man's life does not consist of the abundance, the quantity of items that he possesseth. And you'll forgive me if I paraphrase to make this uh, apply to we ladies. And he spoke a parable to them and he said there was a ground of a certain rich man that brought forth plentifully and he thought within himself saying what shall I do because I have no room to bestow my fruits notice the quantity there is at issue he said this will I do I'll pull down my barns build greater and there I'll bestow all my fruits and my goods and then here is the mistake the rich man made he said I will then say to my soul now He's mixed up. He's talking about barns. He's talking about grain. He's talking about uh, things quantitatively. He's talking about massive amounts gathering unto himself. And then suddenly the scene changes and he addresses or applies this gathering of things to his soul. And I find that very strange. It gives me an insight into a misconception that not only this man had, but many of us from time to time have had. That is, we think that things have to do with eternity. We think that things are relative to walk with God, that possessions are indications of success. It's not so. He said, I'll say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. I, I find that very interesting that the man would think that because he had barns and he had grain and he had need for more space to stow it all, that the soul was then rich. He even indicated that his soul would take ease that his soul would eat. He said to his soul, eat. I didn't know souls ate. He said to his soul, drink. He said to his soul, be merry, have a good time. He really has a lot of things mixed up about the difference between his soul and his body. God said to him, thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee, then whose things will they be which thou hast provided? Jesus then said, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And he saith to his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life. What, and note the word, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what, you shall put on 
And then that profound statement that Jesus made, the life is more than meat. The body is more than raiment. And he went on to illustrate. He said, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They don't have storehouse or barn. God feeds them. How much more are ye better than the thousand? Which of you, taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? In other words, Jesus is saying, you're completely out of the ballpark. You don't know what you're talking about. Let's get some things straight, Jesus said. The body is one thing, the soul is something else. Now I'm keenly aware of the fact that what we do with the body, how the body is conducted, how it is dressed, its attitude, are, is at all times an exhibit of what's going on in the soul. What we see is a clear indication of what we cannot see. However, there must at all times be a clear division in our mind. This is for my soul and this is for my body and what is for the body will perish and therefore I will put things for my soul first in line. Soul first, body second. Soul first, body second. Soul first, things second. Take no thought what you shall eat. It wasn't whether you shall eat. Take no thought what. In other words, the many choices. Don't be so uptight about whether or not it's Henry Don or Lane or Singer or Thomasville. Take no thought. Don't get all uptight about these things. It's, it's all right to have these things, but keep them in order. Keep them in perspective. And don't think for one moment that how successful you are in this life is any indication of the condition of the soul. That's another game. And it's a, and it's a category all its own and must be addressed. This is what Jesus is illustrating. He addressed another problem. He said, and seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Notice he did not say whether ye shall eat or whether ye shall drink. Jesus is illustrating to us that it is not the concern that the body shall be fed that will get a gal down, but it's all of those choices and what it's going to be fed that will get a gal down. See. There's nothing wrong with being concerned about eating, whether ye shall eat. But when you become overwrought in what I'm going to eat and what I'm going to wear, then things begin to get out of balance. Jesus is showing us how things must be kept in perspective. It refers to an overdose of concern about the nature of life, the quality of or the anxiety about how things are going to be. Now, rather than run the risk of being misunderstood, let me pause for a moment to say that I believe that life should be a quality life, and quality does not always mean quantity. Even the time spent with your children it is not the quantity that is important as much as it is the quality. 
And that's a lesson every mother should learn, especially if you work. Quality is more important than quantity. But so many of us in the past have become so taken up with getting and having and what its brand is and what its label is and how much it costs and where it was bought. Take no thought why, but just deal with the weathers. Then he addressed another problem I'd like to talk to you about. He said, neither be ye of doubtful mind, and that's pessimism. That's negativity, that's worrying, that's fretting. Of course, there's no one in this building tonight who is negative. I'm sure there are no pessimists among us. And uh, that makes me feel good. Jesus then said, for all the nations of the world seek after this kind of attitude. In other words, pessimism, worrying, fretting, negativity. It's attributes of the world. It's not the sound mind the Holy Ghost gives you. Don't be concerned with the Joneses. Don't fret and stew over what they have and trying to catch up with them because just about the time you catch up, they'll refinance. <laughs> Jesus said, your father knows that you have need of these things. But rather, and here is the scripture, I love it so much. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, he did not forbid you to have those things. He was not condemning you if you want a Thomasville living room set instead of some off-brand from a North Carolina furniture outlet. <laughs> Jesus said, no problem. You know, I really don't mind if your silver is sterling or if it's stainless steel. That's no big deal to me. He said, just, you know, it's okay. If that's what you can manage, you go ahead. But don't let it take priority in your life. Do not let these things become gods to you. That's basically what he is saying. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. You say, really? I'm telling you, really? I stand testimony to the fact. At the age of 17, I received an appointment, went to the mission field. Many of my teenage friends didn't mind telling me they thought I was crazy. I was going to a nation that was all black. How are you going to find a boyfriend and get married in an all black nation? And I love black people, no offense. But you understand what I'm saying. How do you go out on a date? You're a missionary down there. Nobody's available. I said, don't worry about it. I'm not. I was going with a fellow that wasn't worth the salt to take the pickling at the time. <laughs> Remember? And so it wasn't too hard to leave him behind. And I went on to the mission field and he told me that uh, he loved me dearly and that he'd probably backslide if I left him. And I figured if I didn't leave him, he'd backslide anyhow and he'd both of us would go down the drain. So that wasn't a hard choice either. And after I got down there, I wrote back and told him not to write me anymore that I was a full-time missionary and didn't have any time to spend on lonely, tear-filled letters that I had other things I wanted to do with my life. And he promised me faithfully that when I got back at the end of my five-year appointment, he would be waiting for me. But 
uh, wasn't but a couple months until I got all of his pictures in the mail and uh, heard shortly after he had married. <laughs> but I spent my time on the mission field. No, there were no Saturday night dates, Friday nights, Thursday nights, Monday nights, or Sunday nights. None at all. And those same girls that taunted and teased me and said, you're going to be an old maid, Janet. And I said, well, if that's the way it's got to be, that's the way it's got to be. We take one day at a time. And I went on down there, left it all behind. We packed everything we owned, Mom, Dad, and I did, in 12 barrels and shipped it. And there we buried ourselves in the kingdom and the work of God in the island of Jamaica. God gave us great revival. It's like a second home to me. I love going back to this day. Somebody asked me when I was coming back when I left last time, and I said, as soon as I can. But I had nothing. My dad was a missionary. In those days, there were no PIMs. He got $50 a month. Mom got $50 a month. I got $50 a month. We got $50 a month to drive the car on and $50 a month to buy the groceries, and that was it. And when I left to be married, and that's another story I'll not take the time to tell you about tonight, but to come back to the States to be married, he had to borrow the money just to buy my ticket to get back home. I had nothing, absolutely nothing, when I left the mission field to come back. But the young man that I married owned a home, owned furniture, was living in the house, Everything was there right down to the salt and pepper shaker. <laughs> and there I was, had everything I ever desired, just like that when I married. And some of those girls that teased me have been through two and three marriages, and their lives are dashed on the rocks today. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. I promise you that if you invest yourself in the kingdom and the word of God and you put him first in your life he'll never shortchange you you can't outgive God you can give him everything you have and when you turn around and look everything you ever wished and dreamed for is there and you're going to wonder where it came from I promise you it's the word of God you can't outgive him I could tell you stories that would weary you, I'm sure, but I spend very little time in my home, and I love my home, and I have a beautiful home. My husband has been so good to me, and we have lovely children, and I love being there, but my heart is not in those things first. I love it, and I love being there, but that's not first. My husband, of course, is my first responsibility and my ministry is second, but thank God for a man who understands the call of God in a woman's life. And we work together. But so many of the things that I never in a million years thought I would ever own, I did not buy. They were given to me. And today when I try to make excuses for what I have, people look at me like I'm kind of half money. And I'm, I, it's like I'm apologizing and I'm setting the table with sterling silver that's worth about $8,000, but it didn't cost me a dime. 
He didn't say you couldn't have them. He just said you need to keep your priorities straight. And then he went on to say, Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, Jesus issues a straightforward command and he remedies the problem. I love it when Jesus starts taking the hammer and just hits the nail right on the head. He said, let your loins be girded about, let your lights be burning, and ye yourselves should be like men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, that they may open unto him immediately. All of that draws a scene for me of someone who is alert. Their eyes are open, their mind is running, ticking, their heart is pumping. And they're on the job, they're moving, they're doing, they're going, they're being, they're giving. They're not sitting around with their feet propped up, with the mully grubs, depressed because of the bad deal life has dealt them. But Jesus said that when he comes, he wants somebody that's ready to open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find Watching, alert. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watcher and the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. Say praise the Lord. He concluded that particular discourse in that 12th chapter by saying, For unto whom so much is given... Unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask more. There is a certain responsibility that goes with serving God. And he stated it clearly that this man who was a rich fool, mistook the accumulation of goods for success. He made the mistake of thinking that those things that was for this life was for the life to come. But it was not. He did not understand that souls can't eat, souls can't wear clothes, souls can't drive cars, souls can't eat grain, Souls have no use for bonds. And so I say to you tonight, let us not get these things out of perspective. I continue a little deeper into the quick, the cuticle of our lives by saying that we are victims of a very rapidly changing society. 
Things change much more rapidly today than they did 20 years ago. Social structures have changed rapidly. There are more women in the workforce today than ever before. The problems that Brother Trout and I see in our office daily are the result of the changing social structure in the American culture. You are being victimized by the rapid pace with which everything is changing. And many of the life frustrations that you experience today are a result of the socioeconomic situation in America. The two job, the three job syndrome, the making bills, the having to get more jobs, to pay more bills, to get more money, to spend on more things that bring more bills and demand more jobs. And this is the vicious cycle that everybody seems to get caught up in. How many of you work a public job or in the workforce? Would you look around? Hold those hands up and look around. A greater percentage of this room is in the workforce today. That's your business. I'll not ask you why. I will ask you where are your children. And I'll leave the answer to you and the Lord. But as a result of this syndrome, role changing has transpired. And as a result of this, many anxieties are being imposed on our people. And I'm very deeply distressed about some things that I see happening in our spirit-filled United Pentecostal Church women. There are many positive aspects. I am not a pessimistic person. I'm not a doomsday preacher. And I am looking with a great deal of joy at what has happened and is happening among our women. But realistically, we must address some things. And among us, there are some maladies that will consume us if we do not address them and take charge of them. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens so gradually that you see the results of the changes and the pastor puts the fire out here and it pops up over here and you find yourself just hitting here, hitting here, and, and you're wondering, what in the world is going on? How many of you are pastor's wives? Do you concur with what I've just said? I feel somewhat frustrated in my heart, and as a result of that frustration, I have asked God to give me something to help people. And so if you're one of those individuals who feels confused about life and the priorities and how to deal with certain emotions that are taking place within you, I pray that tonight will be a help to you. As we experience changes in our culture and as things transpire so rapidly around us, uh, do not get caught up in these things and become a victim. Become a statistic. Sometimes you can be halfway to, where, halfway to where you thought you were going only to find out you were following the wrong leader. 
You can become frustrated when you suddenly realize that you were patterning your life after somebody who really didn't have everything you thought they had. And then when they fail, you become disillusioned and begin to lay charges at God and his church and his pastor. Examples and models are a wonderful thing, but they are a hazardous route to follow. There was a fellow who left by a clock shop every day. And I'm told he pulled his pocket watch out of his pocket as he stood before the window, flipped it open and set his watch by the clock that was in the shop window. Every day, the owner of that clock shop would see him, watch him do this, and finally one day he said, I've seen him do this for so long, I think I'll go out and meet him today. And... Um, let him know that I think I'm honored that he would do this. And so after watching him for many weeks, he finally gathered his courage and went out. And he said, hello. He said, I'm the owner of this clock shop, and I've been watching you. Every day you come by my shop, and you stop, and I've noticed you pull out your watch, and you set it by my clock. And I just wanted to come out and meet you. I'm really proud that you would do a thing like this day after day after day. By the way, he said, where do you work? And the man said, well, I work at this factory right down the street here. He said, I come right by here every morning. And the man said, well, that's very interesting. He said, what did you do at the factory? He said, well, he said, I blow a whistle every day at 12 noon. The owner of the shop stopped and his face dropped and he became very serious. And he said, my friend, we have a problem. He said, I set my clocks by that whistle. <laughs> so much of what we do and so much of what we are, so much of how we dress, so much of how we think and worship and pray is a result of what we see other people do. We need to be very careful in this area. God is calling people who seek his face independently and establish themselves firmly upon the concepts of the Bible. We should be an amalgamation of people who have singularly sought God and have obtained for themselves from the throne of God personal convictions that are solid and Bible-centered, things that will stick to your ribs, that will straighten your life out, things that will keep you in the dark, things that will keep you straight when nobody's looking. If you pull down from God your own personal walk with God and relationship with Him in the Holy Ghost, the pastor won't have any trouble with you. Hallelujah. You'll get direction and the anxieties that you have about things in everyday life will just fade away. It will remove from your atmosphere, from your personality, from your job situation, anxieties that are now causing you problems. 
So much of what we are and what we do is a result of what somebody else pulled down from God for us. If we could ever lay hold upon our personal potential in the Holy Ghost, if you could encapsulate yourself, if you could alienate yourself and look at yourself as an individual, total person that is singularly capable of making an impact on this world for Jesus Christ, and stop sitting around waiting for people to initiate programs and organize you and find things for you to do. What's wrong with your little brain? What's wrong with your needs? What's wrong with your prayer book? You can teach a home Bible study. You can witness to the lost. You can sweep a floor and clean a toilet. Nobody has to tell you to do all those things. Get on your feet and get up and get out there. Be an individual. And stop waiting for somebody to motivate you. When are we going to stop worrying about titles and positions and offices? And who gets the credit? When are we going to get beyond that and get on with the business of the kingdom of God? Don't dilly-dally around in that kindergarten kind of thought. Get out beyond that. Go out beyond that. And be a person for God. Leave your thumbprint on this world for Jesus Christ. seconds at a time. I will find something for them to do. Even if it doesn't need to be done. I can't stand to see people just doing nothing. Besides, they need the experience. 
It's not what you have that matters, it's what you do with what you have that matters. The media is an example of that. The same news happens. But how is it that ABC gets the rating to be number one newscasting agency? It's not because they get better news than CBS gets, it's because they've got damn rather. <laughs> you see what I mean? The same car accident reported differently in two different papers. It's not what happens. It isn't what you have. It's how you get a hold of what's there and put it to use that matters. Dan Rather doesn't make the news. He doesn't write the news. He just sits down and reads the news. But it's the way he reads it that made him a millionaire. Hmm? Don't get all down and out because somebody else seems to excel. They're used more than me. Or maybe you're not fit to be used. If you'd straighten up your rotten attitude and put a little smile on your face and clean yourself up and lose about 40 pounds, maybe the baby packs the wood. That's you on the platform to see. Maryland church last night and she said Sister Trout I have to apologize to you I said well okay I didn't know you had offended me I mean I had offended you <laughs> well she said you did it you offended me she said it was two weeks ago when you were preaching and you used the term fat and dowdy and she said I was offended I said, you're kidding. Hey, guess what? She was both. <laughs> I said, well, did you forgive me? She said, that's what I'm doing now. I'm asking you to forgive me. I said, well, did you go on a diet yet? <laughs> so we started all over. <laughs> There's some people that can't make it regardless of what they do because of their attitude, their insecurities, their worry about titles and positions and who's going to get the glory. And yet I've seen other people who couldn't care less what title they have, how much glory is given, whether or not their name is ever called. They just get out there and get the job done. Oh about the fellow who was selling hearing aids that's my kind of person somebody said to me what do you do for a living the man said I sell hearing aids the fellow said really he said um, how much are they the man said well he said I can sell you a hearing aid anywhere from $2.50 to $2,500 just depends on how much you want to pay and the man said oh really well, he said, I'll tell you what, for starters, let me see your hearing aid for $2.50. So the man pulls out of his pocket a button with a string on it. The guy said, that's a hearing aid? He said, that's right. He said, you put the button in your ear and the string in your pocket and people talk louder. 
You're probably not usable. You can't blame your husband. You can't blame your children. If you are looking for someone to blame, this finger, everybody put this finger up, okay? Point it in this direction. Right here. There's your culprit. You're the gal. You're it. Now, let me move on because time is getting away from us into another critical area in this game of life. And it's the battlefield of this hour in which we live, and it's the one that's most frustrating in church situations. And that's the area of human relations. People getting along with people. Whoa, is that ever life? Human beings dealing with human beings. Every one of us can improve in this area. There are ways that this improvement can occur if we can get our act together. Have you ever seen in one of these individuals who can get along with anybody and that everybody likes them? Oh, to be one of those kind of people. I'm not one, unfortunately, that boat I missed. <laughs> but with a lot of study, with a lot of effort, I'm a testimony to the fact that the rough edges can be filed off that you can learn to smile, that you can learn to relate to other people, that you can learn with some effort to be tolerant, to be patient with those that disagree with you, that rub you the wrong way, that you just have this personality conflict with human relations. A lot of prayer, a lot of effort. Personality adjustment in the prayer room does wonders. Wonders, you can't come out of a good prayer meeting and bother somebody out. You can't come out of a good prayer meeting and lose your temper. You can't come out of a good Holy Ghost spell and kick the dog halfway across the yard. All the acid is neutralized in the prayer room. And whatever is maladjusted in your attitude and temperament, take it to the... God's sake, for our sake, for husband's sake, for children's sake, for pastor's sake, pray. And pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And I promise you, by and by, things will begin to look better. And you'll feel better. And you'll smile more. And you'll be more patient. And God will give you insights. He will even give you a baptism of compassion, which goes a great deal of the way to helping understand other people. Compassion. Everybody say compassion. compassion. So the first step in learning to get along with other people is learning to pray. Now how to pray. We know how to pray. Everybody in this room knows how to pray. That's not the problem. The problem is just doing it. We know what to do all too well. But we don't like to do it because we would rather be nasty. 
And you know you can't be nasty and have a prayer meeting. And so we don't pray about it. You prefer to carry a grudge. Everybody in the back corner say amen. amen. Prayer will also help your self-image. Sometimes you don't think as much of yourself as you ought to think. Unfortunately, things that happen in childhood scar the personality and the self-esteem in people. But I promise you that good prayer meetings will bolster that. You pray a few prayers and get a few answers, and you're going to gain some self-confidence. And you're going to be saying, bless God, if I can't do anything else, God listens to me and I can get answers to prayer. Prayer helps your self-esteem. With most people, self-image is a severe problem. They hide it well. Most people hide it very well. But you'd be surprised how many people are neurotic in America. A U.S. government study says that 75% of all Americans are neurotic. So if you look around and see three or four people that look like they're in pretty good shape, you're in trouble. Self-image is the problem. Most of us do not like ourselves as we are. There's not a person sitting in this room, more than likely, that would not change yourself into something else if you could make wave the magic wand and do it. I can guarantee you, every woman sitting out here, with maybe a couple egotistical <laughs> exceptions, if given the opportunity, would change certain aspects of yourself. We think we're either too big, too fat, too tall, too short, too white, too black. Doesn't look this, doesn't look that. The most important thing you can say to yourself is, well, just thank God I'm alive and well, and let's just do the best we can of what we've got to <laughs> There's a lot of publications on the market today about awareness, and I'm not going to get into that area. That's a very dangerous area. Be careful when you read the Now magazines, the Ms. magazines, the Working Woman magazines. Be very, very careful. They're very secular. They're very worldly. Uh, they teach you to be assertive. And that is um, good in certain circumstances, but much of that garbage is non-scriptural. Be very, very, very careful. You need to be selective when you read that kind of information. What you need to know is what you've got going for yourself. You need to become more aware of your good points and not constantly and eternally put yourself down. You have the capability of doing a number of things very well. And you need to give yourself the credit. The Lord has no objections to that. It's just the person who thinks more highly of himself or overrates himself that Jesus warned about. There's nothing wrong with self-esteem. I want you to turn around to the person next to you and tell them one thing that you do well. I can put a stop to you. You can't find the end of that list. Everybody does something well. Everybody. Everybody does something well. Give yourself the credit. 
Did you hear about the fellow that worked in a factory? He worked as a guard in a guardhouse. And every day this fellow comes through pushing a wheelbarrow. And the guard stopped him. He took all of the straw that the man had in the wheelbarrow out, searched, couldn't find anything, put it all back in the wheelbarrow, and let him go. Next day he comes through again, another wheelbarrow, load of straw. He looks through the straw a little better this time, couldn't find anything. This went on for several days. And finally, one afternoon, he saw the guy coming, and he had gotten orders. He was being moved to another guard position. He said, this is it. He said, I can't figure out what's going on. I'm going to find out. So he stopped the guy again. He said, look. He said, I know you're stealing something. He said, I have searched that straw every day to find what you're stealing. And he said, you have it concealed so well, I can't find it. He said, look, I'm not going to be here anymore, so it's neither here nor there with me. What are you stealing? The guy says, wheelbarrows. <laughs> Everybody does something well. And the first thing you need to do every day is get up and pay yourself a compliment. Get accustomed to thinking of yourself more highly than you have been. Not more highly than you ought, but more highly than you have been. Get a mental image of what you would like to be if you're not everything that you are or want to be. And then work toward that mental image. Now, girls, you know that when you walk down the street and you have a plate glass window... You do the side glances about ten times and even find reason to slow up and back up so you can walk by again and look at yourself. You know what else you do? You straighten up and you tuck your brows tail in and you hold your head up a little higher. And if somehow you can kind of get that in your head, what you think you ought to look like, and then live that way, it'll become a habit. And you'll feel better about yourself, you'll look better, you'll speak better, your attitude will be better, and life in general will brighten up for you. And that's my promise. It really will. We look at ourselves at great distances sometimes because we do not like to see ourselves close up. We don't like what we see. And sometimes the lack of self-confidence or self-esteem is the result of truth. And stop ignoring it and hoping it'll go away. And don't feel that you're sentenced and doomed to be that way, whatever it is, the rest of your life. You can change a lot of things about yourself that you don't like. So figure out what you don't like and get to work. If you're fat, go on a diet. If you're skinny, start eating. <laughs> if you can't fix your hair, find somebody that can and let them teach you. Treat yourself to a 
so a new blouse or a new suit or something that'll help spoof you up a little bit, make you look nice. Stop looking in the mirror and going, <laughs> go do something about it. I'd like to ask you to stop knocking each other and learn to work together. You may feel that you have good ideas, but that nobody's paying attention to you. And I know that's a problem. Sometimes you feel like you're not important, nobody's noticing. You may feel like the little boy who joined the Little League and he came home and he said, Dad, I got traded. <laughs> His dad said, that's okay, son. He said, Reggie Jackson gets traded. Pete Rose got traded. Babe Ruth got traded. He said, that's not on you. She said, but Dad, you don't understand. He said, they traded me for a glove. <laughs> and sometimes you feel that way, that nobody's paying attention. But that's not the end of the world. Learn to cope with other people's thoughts, learn to cope with their actions, and learn to cope with their opinions. And don't be so neurotic about adversaries and opposing opinions. They're healthy. In our administrative network, I encourage opposing opinions. When I hold a staff meeting, I put the word out in the form of a written memo. Staff meeting will be held at a certain time. The problems to be discussed are one, two, and three. Please come prepared with solutions and opinions. Of course they're not going to all be the same. But it's the brainstorming that comes up with the great ideas. And don't hold on to your opinion like it's God Almighty talking. You know, if somebody has a better idea, great, tremendous, tell them so. That'll do you good too. To pay somebody a compliment that you can't hardly stand the sign of. You need to learn to cope with other people's opinions. Maturity is measured by the degree of pain or exhilaration that you feel when you are confronted with a new idea with an opposing opinion. Human relations. Life. Learning that life is not what you eat. It's more than what you wear. But it's the quality of existence that makes the difference. There's nothing that makes me more sad than seeing a person that's miserable most of the time. All they know about everything and everybody. I'm going to tell you the truth, my friend. I couldn't live like that. There is no way. I would, I don't know what I'd do, but I'd do something. I would not live in a miserable state. You say, well, you don't understand my circumstances. Circumstances have absolutely nothing to do with what happens in here. 
Listen, the whole world can crumble under your feet and inside your little old heart it's you and God and it's just terrific. And don't sit there and look at me like you think I've never had a problem, that I've never wept, that I have never been frustrated, that I have never had temptation to be depressed and down and out. I have tasted it all. But I want you to know that after excess of 30 years of serving God, I have never found it to fail yet that when the world is crumbling beneath your feet, when everything you put your hand to is falling apart from around you and it seems like the sky is falling on your head, if somehow you can go to God and sort things out and be sure you're right, your heart's right, your attitude's right, you've done everything as right as you know how to do it, and your conscience is clear, you can lift your head while the storm is blowing and have victory in your soul. You don't have to be miserable. If your husband beats you before breakfast every morning, you can have the peace of God in your if your kids are backslidden a million miles from God, if you are financially depraved and destitute tonight, if somebody else had to pay your way into this meeting, I am telling you tonight, you can have peace in your heart. Don't let your external circumstances affect the soul. Keep it separated. Barns, grain, things, jobs, people, possessions, Houses, marriages, divorces, kids, incest, adultery, whatever nasty thing may encroach upon you like a monster, none of those things can get on the inside of you if you forbid them entrance. Keep the soul separated from the barns. Keep the soul separated from the barns. You can have a quality existence. You can. You can. You really can. I love living. I love feeling good. I love being happy. I love getting along. I love reaching out for people. I even love a good fight now and then. But I don't understand these people that are miserable 90% of the time. Year in, year out. And if you think getting married is going to change it, forget it. <laughs> if you're unhappy before your marriage, you're going to be unhappy after your marriage. I've seen people get married four and five times thinking surely this time it will work and they forgot they're dragging the monster into every marriage. All the things that you're involved in have a great deal to do, unfortunately, with the way you feel. And I encourage you to encapsulate yourself, to isolate the internal from the external, and to keep the barns and the soul separated. Work on it. Don't let people manipulate you. 
Now this is something with a little practice you can really get good at. You know how it is, ladies. You get up in the morning, you're feeling fairly well, you know, for a change. Maybe you got all together five hours sleep instead of two. And you, you know, traipse you down the stairs and put the coffee on and, and pull the drapes open, the sun shines in, and breathe deep, and you think, wow, praise God. My list is long. I make my list each night before I go to bed so I know exactly what I'm going to start on the next morning. And I get that list out and I look at it and I'm really making my plans and I'm feeling good and the phone rings. (laughs) If you're not aware, if you're not in control, your human spirit goes, crash. And it's like somebody poured a bag of cement on the inside of you, way down here, and you just get this ugly, ugh, feeling. And then you go through the day like that. Hate it. Hate it. See, when I was younger, people used to manipulate me, and I didn't know what they were doing. One phone call from one disgruntled saint could set me on a binge and I'd feel so depressed and so down and out until one one day I got hold of this thing. And I tell you, I stopped letting people control me. I can tell you now, if somebody controls me now, his name is going to be Wayne Trout, period. (laughs) Now that's allowable, right? But outside of that, bless God in heaven, draw the shade down. Forbid the entrance. Don't let people manipulate you. Don't let people control the way you feel and your attitude and your outlook and your opinions. Encapsulate yourself. Alienate yourself. Not withdraw. Don't become a hermit. You know what I'm talking about. Separate the soil from the barns. And keep the peace, baby. Manipulating people. Experts. They practice all day long. We ought to be good at it. I heard about a young boy that joined the army. Uh, excuse me. He was drafted into the army. It was back when the draft was on. And you know, in those days, if you could qualify for being mentally incompetent, you got a classification that excused you from serving in the army. So when he got his draft notice, he went on as usual. When he appeared for his physical... He came skipping into the office and the doctor said, what's wrong with you? Well, he said, I'm here to get my physical. He said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in the army now. The doctor said, oh yeah? He thought there must be a problem. And uh, so he said, well, you know that if you join the army, you're going to have to leave home. He said, yeah, I know. He said, I can't wait. He said, you're going to have to travel overseas. He said, really? And the longer the doctor talked to try to talk him out of his excitement, the more excited he seemed to get. And finally the doctor said, now wait just a minute. He said, you you obviously don't understand some things. He said, they're going to put arms in your hands. He said, they're going to give you a gun. You're going to have to shoot people. He said, really? He said, oh man, I can't. 
can't wait. He said, will it have a bayonet on it? He said, I hope my gun has a bayonet. He said, I'll run the bayonet through them and pin them to the wall and there'll be blood and guts all over the place. And the doctor said, young man, you're crazy. He said, write it down, doc, write it down. manipulate you, take charge and do something about the things that bring you confusion. Now, I'm not ignorant to the fact that people are victims of circumstances over which they have no control. You will not always be able to change everything to suit yourself, but you can meet your God in a prayer room and you can have an awareness of His Spirit. You can have a touch of His Holy Ghost in your life. You can have his voice in your heart, whispering direction and comfort, tutoring you at every turn of the road. When you don't know what to do, you don't know what to say, you don't know which way to turn, he is the counselor. Hallelujah. I'd rather have him in my boat than to stay overcome at sea without anybody. I'd rather have him aboard in a storm than to be on a peaceful sea without him in my life. Hallelujah. Praise God. It'll bring sunshine to the dark and dingy shadows of your soul. He'll bring a cool, refreshing breeze that will provide for you inner peace regardless of the circumstances. He did not promise that he would give you peace that you could understand and sort out, but he would go beyond that. He'd give you peace that passeth all understanding. God, by his Spirit, can do that for you. If you'll just hang on, keep on, keep working, keep trying, you can do it. You can do it. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord. We must also learn to deal with conflict and solve problems, not symptoms. Do not confuse the symptoms with the problems. It is possible that you can spend your days dealing with symptoms and never go to the root of the problem. I've seen young mothers bounce their crying babies on her knee. And with every bounce, it goes squish, 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 squish. And the little darling doesn't know that the kid is squinting his head off because he just wants his diaper changed. She's trying to get him to stop crying, and all he wants is a dry diaper. Go to the problem. Stop dealing with the symptoms. So much of our time is spent working on symptoms. And as a result of that, we feel irritation, anger, and frustration. Because we deal with symptoms and not problems. Irritation, would you repeat that? Irritation. Anger, anger. And then frustration. frustration. That's the three stages you follow. 
when you deal with the symptoms instead of going to the root of the problem. Three fellows, four fellows were sitting around drinking coffee real late one night. They were discussing irritation, anger, and frustration. One especially was philosophical. And finally he gave up trying to describe exactly what the difference is between irritation, anger, and frustration. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll just demonstrate it to you. So he asked somebody for a dime. The guy gave him a dime. He went to the telephone. He dialed a number. He said, hello. He said, hi. Is Mike there? I said, Mike? There's no Mike here. Crack. Hung the phone up. Turned around to the guys. He said, now that's irritation. Give me a dime. Took the second dime, dialed the same number. Fellow answered the phone. The guy said, hi. He said, uh, it, can I speak to Mike, please? The guy said, I told you Mike wasn't here. <laughs> he said, that's anger. Got another dime? They gave him another dime. He dialed the same number. This time when the fellow answered, hello. He said, uh, hi. He said, I'm Mike. Do I have any messages? That's frustration. <laughs> Solve the problem, not the symptom. And in conclusion, nine o'clock's the closing time. There are three great problems that hold us back from solving problems. And I'd like to discuss those three things with you in these final moments. The number one problem is doubt. That's the horrible feeling you get when you don't know what to do. It's a basic problem because you don't know what to do because you don't know what to do and you don't know what to do about what you don't know what to do about. <laughs> and it's called doubt. There's a Chinese proverb that says, dig the well before you get thirsty. <laughs> Pray before the storm comes. That means that if, if we would pray and if we would listen and if we would learn some basic things that you would not have to worry and doubt when the storm does come. And so I caution you against being so issue-oriented that you forget some very good, solid principles of life, of human relations, of coexisting with other people. We become less than compassionate toward other individuals and extremely impatient with their lack of maturity when we get issue-oriented. We forget underlying problems. I have come to believe that many people are not lazy, Sister Barnett, they just don't know what to do. Oh, there's a few lazy ones here and there, and those are the ones I love to get a hold of. <laughs> I'll work them until their little tongues are hanging out, and then suddenly you'll just catch a whiff of them as they go out of the parking lot. I mean, they leave quick. I love to get a hold of somebody who's lazy and just 
I mean, before they get one job finished, you know, get them something else. I just watch them squirm. I love it. <laughs> and you know full well they're going to go home and sleep 18 hours. <laughs> but that's okay. Sometimes people do not know what to do. I think that laziness is a form of despair. And if you are in a leadership position in a church, you need to take the time to work with them and show them how to do what you're demanding that they do. Don't think that they can read your mind. They cannot. And even after you've explained yourself, they probably do not even then understand. And you assume that they knew how to do what you asked them to do, and there are the problems. Perhaps you've never taken the time to address the problem instead of the symptom. If we're going to settle our problems and not our symptoms, we have to clean out the doubt, bring in the faith, get out of the negative and neutral state, get over into optimism, and think positively, and think with faith, and make plans, and set goals, and then do something about it. Don't be a pessimist. Don't give yourself too much liberty in your mind because you have a natural tendency to think negatively. As the old timers used to say, you're born trouble. And 85% of what you worry about never happens anyhow, so save yourself trouble. That's why I don't worry. I honestly, before God in heaven, I am not a worrier. I just figure if the whole thing blows up tomorrow, well, what's the difference? I just go straight up. (laughs) I just can't see wasting, spending energy. To me, energy and time are two precious commodities that God gave me. I have human strength. I have human energy. I have mental energy. I have a human spirit. I've got a lot of drive. I have a lot of visions, a lot of plans for the next 47 years. And I'm not willing to spend one minute of it on negative things and worrying about situations that probably will never occur. It's a waste. It is a waste. And so I refuse to give out my good energy and strength that I could invest into something that's constructive, something that's positive, something that will work, something that can move, something that's tangible, something I can see. I would prefer to expend my energy. My energy and my time are two commodities that God gave me. And I stand guard over those things, Sister Rogers. I'm telling you, they're more precious to me than money and things any day of the week. You take the $8,000 silver. You take whatever else I may own or have, but don't take my energy. And may God help me, don't take my health. Don't take my sound mind. Don't take my vision. And don't take one minute of my 24 hours because I have it laid out in little slices and I live up every second of it. My energy and my time are commodities that are precious. And you think I'm going to waste them on worrying about things that will probably never happen? My staff knows me that when I have a staff meeting, it's to the point No long periods of deliberation. We bat things around there and in 15 minutes flat that thing is over and we are out of there and we know where we're going and what we're doing. Besides, I don't like committees. (laughs) 
Get in my way. You know what a camel is? It's a horse built by a committee. I know they're necessary. You have to have them sometimes to keep people peaceful and quiet in their little corners. Oh, but we don't have many committees. Just enough to get by. So don't give yourself too much liberty in your mind. Don't allow yourself to think negative thoughts about yourself, about others. Don't be entrapped into a state of mind that is doubtful and full of negative things that prohibits the activity of the Spirit of God. God gave you a sound mind and God will work freely in a heart of faith where the sun shines, where His Spirit is. God will filter through that daily and He'll give you insights and wisdom and He'll give you strength and courage. But if you are negative and depressed and downcast and down and out, He won't be found in a country mile of you and I couldn't blame Him because I wouldn't either. I don't like to be around negative people. I don't like to be around moaners, groaners, and complainers. I'll turn right around and look them right in their eyeball and say, what is your problem? (laughs) And we just get on with it. And if they can't fix it and I can't fix it, I'll just stay as far away as I can from it and just keep on trucking. (laughs) Praise God. Life is too short. Time is too valuable. The Lord is coming too soon. To waste our time and energy and all that garbage. Oh, you just spend so much time with garbage. I couldn't live like that. I couldn't live like that. And there's some of you sitting here that say you don't like it either. I can see it on your face. I have a feeling that you're going to go out of here and weed some things out. (laughs) Watch out. Praise God. I honestly do not believe that the Holy Ghost feels at ease in the house of an individual that is perpetually downcast, downtrodden, pessimistic, and negative, and critical about everything and everybody. But I do believe the Holy Ghost takes pleasure in walking in the life of an individual that's full of vibrancy and faith and effervescence and optimism. I believe that all of these things will improve the quality of your living because it affects the way you are which affects the way you affect people, which changes the atmosphere in which you live, which is what we're talking about, life. Praise God. Fear is another obstacle that you must surmount. You've got to get a hold of that thing. Don't be afraid to act. Don't be afraid to speak. Don't be afraid to do. So many things are put on hold for far too long because of fear. Fear will not let you go. But you're going to have to let go of it. Fear will entrap you. Fear will hold you so that the things that you are pursuing cannot be attained. And the things that you need to get rid of cling to you like a leech. Fear will entrap you. Fear will make you hold on to things and will not let you give them up and give them over to God. There's a few things holding you back that you do well to turn loose of and let them go. Life comes in stages. Life is transitory. Life is in phases. Things change. You have to recognize these changes and, and move with them. Mary and I are not like we were in 1955. Who's kidding who? 
We're both grandmothers, right? You have to recognize changes. You can't just plop down and say, I ain't moving for nobody. And nothing's going to change. Life changes. Adjust yourself to life and its phases and its change. There was a day in my life I had toddlers. I had to adjust my life according to my babies. And I did that. But then they grew up. And then I did other things. Like I was a DJ, 6 o'clock in the morning on a radio station for six years. I went in and did a gospel music every morning, very early, and got my program done, and I was back home in time to wake my kids up and get their breakfast and get them off to school, and that was a phase and a time. There was a time in my life I drove a school bus, paid $25 a week, bought a lot of bread and milk with it. I drove a school bus until I was eight months pregnant with my girl. It meant putting food on the table, but the trout and I both drove a school bus to help in a home mission's work. But I don't drive school buses anymore, praise God. I'm not eight months pregnant anymore, hallelujah. Comes in phases and stages, and you have to recognize. When your children get married, things are not the same when they leave home. And don't sit around and chew on your fingernails and get the mother grubs and cry. Get up, pick yourself up, think of what else you can do with your life and time. Life is in phases and recognize it. It revolves, it turns, it's never the same. 1985 is going to be, by God's grace, one of the greatest years I've ever had in my life. I'm helping open a Bible school in Kingston, Jamaica. It's not an extension of our college. It's just that I am Jamaican by second nature and... That's my land I love, and that's where I have invested so many years, and, and I have volunteered my time and services to them to help them get set up. And I've been down there training their people and getting things set up and ready to roll. They'll be ready to go here in just a couple of three months with 200 students. Wow. Kingston, Jamaica. 1985, I want to learn another language. I just think it's terrible to go 47 years old and only know one language and I'm still working on it. <laughs> you know, all the languages in the world, I only know one, I want to know at least two. And then after I learn two, who can tell, maybe I'll go back and get the third one. Life comes in phases and changes, adjust. Don't be afraid to turn some things loose and let them go. You know how they catch monkeys in the jungle? They take a coconut, cut the top off of it, cut the coconut into little bits, Put it on the inside. The monkey puts his hand in the coconut, gets a handful of coconut. He can't get his hand out. And he holds on for dear life. And he goes running through the jungle, swinging that coconut. And he can't run very fast, and he wears out very quickly. And they catch him. The devil's going to catch you if you don't learn to turn loose some things. Turn loose. Those things slow you down. You have to turn loose of some things in order to be able to pick other things up. Oh, I can't stand it when I hear it. Well, we've always done it this way. <laughs> oh, Jesus, help us. Let go. Loosen your grip. 
your fear of envy, fear of reprisal, fear of losing something that you could probably do without any help. Turn it loose. Let it drop. God will take care of you. Next, you must learn to cope with anxiety. Definition of the word? Problems that haven't happened yet. 80% of what you're anxious about never comes to pass. You think yourself into a problem. Mm -hmm. People that are afraid to fly have thought themselves into a problem. Can't say I really blame them though because you know when you look at it, you go to the airport and there's this big sign in block letters and it says permanent parking. <laughs> and you think, well, what do they mean by that? And you get over that one, leave your car and haul your suitcases into the building, go down the concourse on the way to the plane, you pass this little machine, you think, oh, it's a Pac-Man machine. You go down and you realize it's a life insurance. <laughs> and then it hits you again and you think, oh, Lord. Then you go a little further and finally you see this big sign that says departure. <laughs> Anxiety takes all kind of forms, doesn't it? Now, there are three ways that you can conquer fear and doubt and anxiety. It's called supervision. 3D. 3D vision. There are three Ds. Supervision. Learning to take charge of your own affairs, learning to square your shoulders, learning to face life with a smile, not a grin. Learning to be victorious, not only with matters pertaining to the soul, but matters pertaining to everyday life. It's all right. We talk about the never-never land of the far blue yonder, but how about the nasty here and now? Things that bother you today, things that you're depressed about now, fears that are in your mind, doubts. I'm here to tell you that you can conquer with three D's. Number one, desire. Everybody say desire. Desire. Beginning of all achievement. Not a wish. It's stronger than a wish. It's a goal. Something solid. It hurdles you in the forward direction. Burning. You're not going to get where you're going in short little hops. You're going to have to take a long leap into the dark. Desire drives you. When just the tides, you can't put one foot ahead of another. The desire drives you. You say, oh, I don't think I can get on one more airplane. The desire drives you. Desire is tremendous. It's absolutely tremendous. I could spend 20 minutes on it, but I won't. Time is out of uh, control now. <laughs> but I just encourage you to work on your desire mechanism. Make sure that it's in place, that it's healthy, because that could be the root of your problem. And don't forget what the Word said. Delight yourself in the Lord, and that He will give you the desires of your heart. Secondly, of the two D's, desire them, direction. Intensity governed by illusion is disastrous. If you're going to be intense, 
Please do not work in an illusionary vision. Get direction. Oh, some people's lives are like those who sit on stationary bicycles and pedal for miles every day and get nowhere. <laughs> Going through the motions so tired at the end of the day they can't hardly stand up but ask them what they accomplished and they can't tell you. <coughs> Primarily because it was nothing. <laughs> Make sure you have direction. Because it is a subtle thought, Sister Barnett, that if you walk in a forward motion, in a specific direction, sooner or later, guess what? You're get there. Direction. Direction. You need direction. Everybody has to have direction. I heard about the lady who said she wanted to go hunting with her husband, deer hunting. He said, honey, you've never shot a gun, much less been deer hunting. He said, I'd rather not. She said, please, please. It's what I've always wanted to do. I want to go deer hunting. So he gave in and he took her and told her how to hold the gun, put her up in the deer stand, up in the tree, and said, all right, when the deer comes by, he's snickering to himself, Shoot it, I'll hear the gunshot, and I'll come and help you with it. So she said, okay, and he helped her up and handed her a gun, and he walked away, and just as he got over on the other side of the hill, he heard him, boom, he said, oh, no. (laughs) He turned and ran back to see what in the world had happened, and he walked up just in time to see this man standing there in this big cowboy hat and boots saying, okay, lady, if you say it's a deer, you can have it, but would you please let me take the saddle off? (laughs) 